Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, the first installment of another Handshake miniseries saying farewell to summer, covering the meatball movies and other summer camp shenanigans, featuring archery, sex packs, junior league soccer, arson, canoeing, prostitutes, capture the flag, peeping, food fights, nudie mags, decathlons, gruel, and Bill Murray. Jacob. Yes. But the real excitement, of course, is going to come at the end of the summer during Sexual Awareness Week. We import 200 hookers from around the world, and each camper armed with only a thermos of coffee and $2,000 cash tries to visit as many countries as he can, and the winner, of course, is named King of Sexual Awareness Week and is allowed to rape and pillage the neighboring towns until camp ends. What do you expect for $1,000 a week? Attention all campers, afternoon swim schedule is as follows. Advanced Dolphins will report to the dock for survival swimming and IQ testing. All senior silverfish meet on the beach for nude sunbathing. Junior salmon, trout, and herring report to the nearest delicatessen. Six-year-old tadpoles report to the swamp. And all lobsters... Get out of here, you're a menace! Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to go to summer camp? Always ready to go back. I mean, we need to probably explain how this came up to be because this is another mini-series from us, and this was your pitch to me that we take a break and kind of wind down August with a trip to a bunch of summer camp movies, but we based it all around, like, Watching the Meatballs movies, because I, frankly, have never seen these before. I mean, that was the that was the main impetus. We were all watching. It was during our uh, mid-year marathon, and I had mentioned that I had just gotten the soundtrack on LP. I was at the um, a record store in North Austin, and you said, I've never seen that series. And I was like, holy shit. And then you messaged me. I think, I think even before we decided to do this, you decided to watch it. And you're like, I didn't, you're like, I need to see that. And you're like, wow, this is really fucking great. It was after the marathon because you and Shapiro were both like kind of broing down over it about how much you liked the series as a, as a whole. And then you were running through like how fucking weird the series gets that there's like aliens and porn stars and Corey Feldman. And I was sitting there like waiting for us to start the marathon, having our first couple whiskeys together. And I was sitting there being like holy shit, like I need to actually watch these movies and this became our excuse because I, I watched it after our marathon. I think the night after we did the marathon and was like, this movie's really fucking good. Like the first Meatballs I think is actually a good film. Maybe Ivan Reitman's, I don't know if it's his best movie because it's it's janky and kind of weirdly put together. It feels like him culling from his kind of Canadian exploitation days and, and really making 
a, a feature on the fly, but like it's, I don't know. There's a sweetness to it and there's a great kind of Bill Murray central performance, which this is one of his first. It's his first starring role. Big. Yeah. Okay. At like acting gigs and starring roles because like everybody kind of just knew him from Saturday Night Live at this point. But I was taken with like how good he is in it, how sweet the movie is and how like. It was more than just just like the juvenile dick and fart per, like joke parade that I expected. Yeah, and then um, and we'll get into more of the specifics, but uh, you continued the pitch back to me of like, oh, what? And I think I'd also said, what if we pair it with some slashers? And then you said, oh, and let's let's do add one more per week of like either another Meatballs ripoff, another camp movie, a non-horror movie. So the original pitch was like Meatballs ripoffs, and then I realized how fucking bad they were because I've seen a few, because like Pinball Summer was going to be the original pitch for the third movie this uh, episode, but I rewatched like the first 20 minutes of it and was like, oh, that's right, this movie sucks. So like... We needed to do something else. So instead, I thought of Little Darlings, which would pair well with these other two films because it also is very poignant and funny and, uh, frankly, would make film Twitter melt down completely if released today. All of these movies would make film Twitter like melt down completely. But it was like an idea of, like, what if we just did three distinct camp movies per episode that kind of thematically tie together and like this first like trilogy, let's say, is pretty fucking good. Like I had a lot of fun watching these movies. These are great, and there's going to be some matchups coming in the <laughs> next couple of weeks that may not be quite as cinematic. I would say like these are all like have a budget. This is the tamest episode. This is the tamest episode, and also probably the biggest budget. Honestly, uh, of like these are legit movie movies with like real actors and cinematography. There's some. Even the meatball series, as it goes on, it, it, there's some, um, there's no basement to how bad the jokes can get, and inappropriate, but also just like bad dad jokes that just completely fall flat. Yeah, and there'll be ten minutes of time where, like, wow, I'm just like feeling my energy being sucked <laughs> sucked out of me. Um, These movies are actually all legitimately good, but one is still like what the first production from Harvey Weinstein. Yep. So Which will, it's still problematic as fuck. That's the one thing I do want to say. I, I will put up a content warning or whatever before we get into the series. None of these movies, not one, are going to be, let's say, acceptable by any kind of modern uh, societal standard because even Meatballs, and we'll get, again, we'll get into it as we dive deeper into the movies themselves. Like, Meatballs, one of the things we kept like texting back and forth was like, oh shit, man. Like this is all just like one 90 minute romp about guys forcing themselves on women. Yep. And it's, um, it's, if you take the kind of recent, um, last couple years, everyone, the one they kind of bring up most specifically is, um, Revenge of the Nerds as this film where, complete sex romp, but you know, the main character played by Robert Carradine is a straight rapist. Like he, he rapes, he rapes the girl by pretending to be her, her boyfriend. And well, even animal house, which was produced by Reitman has a straight up, like 
underage sex like subplot pushing and, her like, back in a fucking yeah a like cart. A, a angel and devil gag about possibly raping a girl while she's unconscious like during this time people didn't really consider women's rights we're gonna be honest nor their bodily autonomy and maybe meatballs the burning and little darling little darlings being the only one that actually does take this into account which is Kind of why we picked it is that it flips the whole point of view on its head. Yes. And um, but the majority of films like Meatballs and then The Burning today, um, while very entertaining and very fun and it doesn't completely overtake the movie where there are some films you watch. You're like, oh, my God, this is just inappropriate through and through. Like for me, like Soul Man with C. Thomas Howell. Is one of those where it's like, I just can't watch that movie. If you went straight to soul, (laughs) but I'm saying like that extreme of like the concept alone, I cannot, you know how many times I've seen soul man, like on comedy central, probably 20. (laughs) And just because it was on and you like my dad loved soul man. He thought it was a legit good movie. And even as a kid, I remember watching soul man and being like, there's something off about this. (laughs) Yep. There's something not right. And it's pretty glaring, but Meatballs, I mean, what's really weird is it's fucking PG. And all, I think majority, definitely one, two, and four, I believe, are all PG. And so no nudity, but very sexual humor, um, very wry. Just, you know, what we'd say now in rating, like, um, I don't say sexual conversations or whatever. Um, very frank. It's very, it's very earnest. Um, and, a lot of that just would not play today or would just be in a more rated R sex romp. I Um, think what's crazy is that little darlings came out a year after meatballs and it's rated R and it doesn't like there's some F words in it. That's probably the other reason too. And also the fact that it's actually focused on female characters probably made a lot of the ratings board uncomfortable, especially once we get into a lot of the losing your virginity and sex stuff. So you kind of get it, but yeah, I had to remind myself that meatballs wasn't R rated. Like it still feels of a piece with like, Animal House and Blues Brothers and like Ghostbusters and like this whole, which Ghostbusters was PG. So that kind of fits, but it's like, it it just felt like it was cut from the same cloth as the R rated comedies of its era. And like that Bill Mayer, like Stripes is the other one too. That's R rated. Yes. But like it's, it tiptoes right up to the line but doesn't quite get there, I guess. Yeah, because you look at all the advertising for meatballs, and I was looking, at, I was like going to just looking at posters around the world, and they really emphasized this as a sex comedy, right? And out of all these, it's actually and out of the whole meatball series, it's the least, honestly, the least sexual. It because like two is like pretty ridiculous like three and four three is really ridiculous um with its with its idea i can't wait the way you guys were describing these movies is that i felt like an 11 year old kid listening to their big brother again where they were trying to like describe time cop to me and it was like what jean-claude van damme goes back in time like you guys were talking about the meatballs movies we were like there's Corey feldman there's fucking aliens sally kellerman plays a porn star ghost of of a porn star Ghost of a porn star one. And I I like I was staring at you guys again with that eleven year old lizard brain of being like, what they're describing is not real. That is the holy grail of films. Yes, it's um well and and we've talked about um in our uh 
acquaintance like Mike McPadden, you know, rest in peace, who wrote a whole book on sex comedies. Right. And teen the, sex comedy. Teen sex comedy. So he showed Hot Dog the movie when I was at Sin Apocalypse. Oh, God. And that movie does not go over with the crowd. I mean, talk about a film that is just groans. From, did we watch that together when I got the Synapse Blu-ray? Or did I've only I watch ever that seen it myself? there. Okay. He, he brought a 35 millimeter print, a hot dog. I it think, was fucking great. I think that Synapse uh, release that I have is sourced either from that print or like the, a negative that he helped find yeah. because it looks incredible. But I had the same reaction too to where like I bought the disc because it was Synapse. I buy everything Synapse was, uh, has done. And like McPadden just knowing like if he vouches or vouched for a movie, I should say that it was worth watching, but I got like 30 minutes in and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is terrible. Yeah, it's bad. He kind of had a similar to what Grady Hendrix is doing with paperbacks from hell. Sure. Where he's like, he's finding his old, like he, he kind of wrote the book on it and now he's finding the texts and helping them see the light of day with these new reprints. It's right. like kind of what I think that, that might help do. And you also, it gives you, a good appreciation for a certain style of appreciation where it's like, this is key in like this body of a, a very specific type of filmmaking that doesn't necessarily make it good. It makes it kind of like an artifact and important. Yeah. And important to it. And I feel like that's what as weird as it is to, to call a movie like hot dog, the movie important. It's a, a good distinction to make, let's say to where it's like, you can watch a movie like hot dog and be like, this sucks, but I get what you're talking about in terms of like where this fits into like the sex comedy romp. Like you have to kind of analyze it to understand like where they were coming from or what was appealing to audiences at the time. But you watch it 40 years later and you're like, that doesn't appeal to audiences now. Well, and that's like, I think a good distinction to make too, though, is that, you know, especially with the Meatballs movies. So the Meatballs movies and a lot of the other camp movies that either the Meatballs ripoffs or um, even movies like Little Darlings, like, are part of a larger genre of teen sex comedies. And a lot of times, the camp, those type of camp movies are like a subset of that because it's all about location. Like um, beach movies were a whole thing. Um, still, not like fucking beach blanket bingo stuff, but more about. I'm um, thinking of um, like summer school. Um, or then you have ski school, all the things, which is hot dog, the movie, anything that took place on the slopes, it was all like location based. And it almost just seemed like whatever the producers had access to, like, they're like, Hey, we got access to shoot at this place. We're going to make a, a ski movie. It just feels very opportunistic. Yeah. Like the sex comedy felt like slasher is very opportunistic of like do a ripoff, but also like what, where can you shoot? They could get a writer for cheap to bang out a script for 10 grand in like five days just because they had a location they could shoot at. That's what a lot of these feel like. But at the same time, kind of like you're talking about with slashers, which is what makes them an interesting pairing with these uh, summer camp sex comedies is that like the slasher, the sex comedy went to what was popular at the time. And Meatballs is kind of one of the key texts in the beginning of the summer camp movie boom yeah. to where like it was a solid hit. It launched Bill Murray as like this new comedic star. And so like, of course a bunch of producers and stuff are going to chase it, like chase that same dollar, let's say. And then slashers the next year do the same thing with Friday the 13th in 1980. So we have two separate genres that prove because like Paramount puts out, uh, 
all three of these movies actually we're going to talk about today because they put out wild. Meatballs. They put out uh, Friday the 13th. The Burning. They put out... Did they? No, the burning's still MGM. MGM. Yeah. So no, it's not all three. But still, if you think about it, like you got meatballs, Friday Thirteenth, and Little Darlings. Because Little Darlings, even though it's probably the best movie we'll talk about in the entire steer- like series, I think it's a stone masterpiece. Um, also put out by Paramount and feels like them being like, wow. So like, this movie made a lot of money. This other movie made a lot of money. What if we just green lit this female driven version of this type of story and like chase that dollar? And honestly, Little Darlings made $35 million. That's mind blowing when you watch this in 2022 because it's about two girls who bet each, two 15 year old girls, I should clarify, who bet each other who can lose their virginity first. Imagine walk, like walking into any producer's office with that pitch in 2022. They'd be like, get the fuck out and never come back. I mean, Booksmart goes close. Sort of. Well, because it's it, when. Booksmart is a similar thing where it was, I mean, the pitch you could tell was like super bad with girls. Like that was it. Like you, it's on the surface. It's a different movie, but it's super bad with girls. It's also made by Olivia Wilde though. This is made by somebody you've never heard of before or since. I think there's a distinct difference because this feels way more exploitative, like in the vein of like what Ivan Reitman was producing in Canada at the time. And then up to meatballs and even what Friday the 13th was doing. We're like, Olivia Wilde fucking directs Booksmart and it's touted. It's put out by who? A24, right? I think A24, yeah. And then like... Or like Searchlight or something Searchlight, like that, it's yeah. one of those. And it's like touted as like the big debut of this name actress that's super feminist. Nobody was talking about Little oh, Darlings in that vein. That's more what I'm saying is like the key difference. Like they were positioning Booksmart as feminist super bad where this is like... What if we can cash in on this craze and like a good movie just happened to sneak in the back door? Well, because like the, you know, the advertising, you show me the poster, like, first of all, the, the name Little Darlin sounds like another name for jailbait. It does. It sounds yeah. like this kind of like very we sexual. Were make, you were making the joke while we were watching this being like, why didn't they just call this jailbait? And I was like, somebody had to have made a movie called jailbait at some point. But that's not porn. Or not. <laughs> I think there's definitely porn, but like something that's, that's not, but it's that it's definitely, it's, it's selling one thing and giving you another, which is great. I love that kind of subversive filmmaking, especially like you're saying at a time when that was very much more difficult to do, but the, you know, even on the cover, it's like two girls trying to lose their virginity first. Like that's like the tagline of the movie is like, this is about two girls losing their virginity. So you're expecting, Oh, it's going to be a teeny bopper kind of sexy movie. And it's not, it's not, well, it's not trying to be, um, I would say. No, this is a very touching, poignant coming of age film um, that again, just kind of snuck in the back door of this weird parallel exploitation boom that was happening at the same time as like Friday the 13th, because Friday the 13th begets one of the movies that we're talking about today, The Burning, and then you have Sleepaway Camp that goes down the line, and then you get all the way up to a couple other movies that we're going to cover here during like the mid to late 80s, and even how they kept coming back with a summer camp movie every year with Friday the 13th, the series. So like this was a big, weird subgenre that cropped up, and honestly, you pointed out to me, kind of has the same lifespan as the slashers, like the real big, like let's say boom happens between 79 and like 84, 
four. Yep. Because Meatballs 2, even though there's two after it, becomes sort of like the end point of like, we're coming back to this well for like one, to, to get like just one last drop of money out of it. And then Meatballs 3 and 4, again, haven't watched them yet. But from the looks of it, we're more just like, we have the name and we can make a Meatballs movie for cheap and people will know it. Let's just do that. When well, 4 is weird, it's like, I think it's like 1994. 92, it's, I think. It's late though. I mean, and it feels like the 90s and you have, as so we'll get to Corey Feldman, trying to bring the energy of Bill Murray and oh God, does he fail miserably? I mean, don't put yourself in that situation. Um, well, do you want to talk about the first meatballs now? Let's do it. All right. Are you ready for the Meatballs. 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 Meat on the meatballs. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about 1979's Meatballs from Ivan Reitman. Um, I think this is my favorite first time viewing of the year. I'm going to be 100% honest. Like I've watched it five times in the last month. I find it incredibly touching, super funny, and maybe... And this is good, possibly like the best place to start. My favorite Bill Murray performance before he started being serious. Like it's at least my favorite, like early Bill Murray performance now. Like I even like it more than Carl Spackler. Like I think he's, he does so many different things in this that predict what he would do throughout the rest of his career in a weird way. It, I, I completely agree. And it reminds me a lot of, um, Eddie Murphy's performance in 48 Hours before he went and did Beverly Hills Cop where yeah. it kind of crystallized. This is more like, it's a little wilder and a little bit like, it, there's the energy of like, oh my God. It's like watching something for the first time of like, can you imagine being a theater goer? Like, okay, this is the guy from SNL, but this is his movie. It, again, like 48 Hours, like that is in my mind, Eddie's movie. He's so powerful in it. This is it rides or dies on the charm of Bill Murray, the entire movie. And you can also see as Bill Murray is performing, it almost has the feel of like an airplane pilot who finally gets to fly by himself one time and occasionally realizes, holy shit, I'm flying a plane. And like, you really get that spark of like energy and hunger from like a young performer. That's really infectious and just amazing to, to kind of behold. Yeah. I mean, people talk about watching like early De Niro when he's hungry, you know, you watch like taxi driver earlier down back to like, um, uh, Godfather part two, you know, and all the early scenes. And it's, this is obviously a different kind of genre. It's that same thing of like a person who's gone on to be idolized, mimicked, written about and this is like the original artifact <laughs> of like where it all began and this is him also having something to prove maybe you know of like i'm gonna be a star and he's this is my favorite bill murray performance this is uh i'll put it out there i i think he's made he's in better movies but this is a movie where it just again is completely 
writing his charms. Some of the later stuff of his is so snide that I, I kind of just, I roll my eyes at it, like getting late, even up to Scrooged, you know, where it's just, it's so, it's so cocky and so witty. This rides a line well for me between sweet and, and sarcastic. Well, and I think that you see the seeds of everything Murray would do for the next 10 years in Tripper a little bit to where it's like, and not just beyond that, but it's like, this is where the Murray persona kind of comes from is that he does a lot of the goofy improv and like talking to himself and characters to other people and like mimicking things and, and it rambling on like, all the stuff that like Carl Spackler would do up through, like you said, Scrooge is actually a nice end point there yeah. of like the, let's call them the golden years of Bill Murray to where you have everything from like this Caddyshack the very next year. Stripes. Stripes, uh, Ghostbusters, up through Scrooge, which I think Scrooge is like a stone classic. I do like myself. it a lot. It is kind yeah. of snide, but I think he's supposed to be because he's oh, doing the a- Ebenezer Scrooge character. Yeah. But even then, it's it's Bill Murray. It's Tripper doing Ebenezer Sco- Scrooge, if that makes any sense. Because you can see a bit of this character in every character he would play for the next 10 years. And then he would kind of evolve again. Like, what about Bob feels way different than it does from these next 10 movies to where like, or 10 years, I should say of movies to where like, to me, lost in translation feels like, and that's what 2001, 2004, 2004. That feels like the beginning of what we would know to be like prestige Murray before he starts where he's working with like Wes Anderson and maybe even actually Rushmore might be the very first one of prestige Murray. I was going to say, that's what I would put it with. But like Lost in Translation feels like, I guess like you were talking about like the crystallization. And to me, Ghostbusters feels probably the best like crystallized version of the 80s Murray persona to where like Lost in Translation is the crystallization of the 2000s, like the the what we would know is like the prestige years. The for art Bill house Murray, stuff. The yeah. art house stuff from like Rushmore, Tenenbaums. And then that, because that was the one where he like famously got upset for not winning the Academy Award for that movie because he is so fucking incredible. Did you see On the Rocks? I did the not. Mo- the other movie he made with Sofia Coppola? Quite fucking good. Really, really loose and charming and funny and like the best movie I think that she's made since lost in translation and maybe the most undervalued one that she's made since then. I like Marie Antoinette quite a bit too, I love that but movie. like he's quite good in it too, of, of doing a, a riff on that, that similar type of like wandering divorced playboy character. Yeah. I think part of the reason I've, I'm, I haven't soured on Murray, but like in the last couple of years, just the, the way that the fan base can make annoy me of all the guys, with the Murray t-shirts with the fucking 3d glasses, yeah. like where you're like, cool. You're Bill Murray fan. I like McDonald's, you know, it's like way to be, I've always found that entire group kind of annoying. Like a Murray kind of guy, I'm like oh, yeah, the everybody. whole like chive bullshit, yeah, that like shit. brand thing. Well, and that's the funny thing about Mur- Bill Murray is that he became a meme almost like accidentally in the same way Nick Cage did, but Nick Cage then leaned into it to yeah. where Murray, just continued to make movies with Wes Anderson. 
Like he continued to just do his thing and people latched onto it. And I think that's the difference between almost like him and Cage to where Cage became self-aware about his own memedom, especially in something like... Oh, unbearable likeness of... Um, massive talent. Mass- yeah. yeah. Unbearable like, weight of massive talent. Unbearable weight. It's too long of a fucking title. So like, but he became self-aware of the memedom. is even like acknowledging it where Millie, like Murray just kind of lets it happen. And it's like, oh that's something you're doing. I'm just continuing to do my thing. Like he still feels sincere to me, but I agree with you. It's almost like he's sort of like the fight club of actors. The fight club is exactly that to where it's it's like you hate the fan base, but you're still like, well, the work's really good though. And getting to the work. I mean, meatballs again, going back early and you just can't be unimpressed by his talent. Um, and, I remember, I mean, talking about the Meatball films, we go forward this month, I mean, you can't not talk about the Wet Hot American Summer film and series, which were totally sending up all the cliches of the Meatballs movies, which are already sending up cliches inside of their films, especially the sequels. Sure. But also the cliches um, of teen sex comedies in general. Um, and they do it in the, the show First Day of Camp and also 10 years later. And one of the things I was reading, a really great review of, I think it was just of the film, um, from 01 where they're talking about how it's, it takes place in 1981, which was like this cusp where what the male cinematic hero in a sex comedy or, uh, or a teen movie would be. And Bill Murray was the one who kind of turned that over. So there's a scene where you see, um, Paul Rudd reading this famous Rolling Stone interview from 81 with Bill Murray. And actually in a camp in a kind of cabin similar to Murray's cabin um, from meatballs where he was like the head counselor. It was more like his dorm room where he kind of held court and oversaw all the, you know, crazy activities of the camp. But Murray brought again, maybe not on purpose, but this whole view of like what was sexy too, because like he's not on the, on the surface, an attractive man. He's hideous. He's, he's goofy, but he's that guy who can talk the whole, Tripper's the whole guy who talk his way into any woman's pants. Like, that's part of his... Well, especially if Spaz is by his side. Yes, you know, Spaz is the one you gotta look out for. And, um, but it is, it is, you see him kind of create this, this new kind of character that they carried into a lot of other types of comedies. I mean, like, you wouldn't have Seth Rogen in, in fucking Knocked Up without, no, without yeah. Murray. I mean, because and I was also thinking about how Apatow, like, this type of improv humor is also what has now become what Apatow did, of course, and, and by, you know, Association McKay, you know, with all his comedies of, like, you get great comedians to just to improv. Well, it's all an extension of John Landis, right? Yes. Because they yeah. originally wanted Landis, but like, both Ramis and uh, Ivan Reitman wanted Landis to make this movie. They were really pushing for it at a certain point. And then when he passed because he was making the Blues Brothers, like, Reitman just decided to direct it himself. But it has the same like looseness of like animal house, but where like Belushi was a side character with Bluto. Like, and that was more of an ensemble. Let's say he's not a side character, but he's just one of many. We'll put it that way. Yeah. This is squarely on Bill Murray, but it lets him really cook the same way that animal house let all of its uh, talent cook at the same time, particularly, you know, John Belushi. Yeah, that's a good point. And, one of the things we'll notice as we get to the sequels is that without a lead like Murray, they have to split the humor across many different characters. It becomes much more vignette with much more uh, subplots of like, here's a funny thing happening here, happening here. 
when you think about the other characters and meatballs, none of them are that funny. Like Murray's the only one in my mind who like, there's they try they try but they and they don't fall flat. They're not bad jokes, but he's the one who runs the humor. And because uh, he, he's almost in every scene too. Honestly, I mean, without Murray, this would be pinball summer. Like yeah. this would be one of those Canadian sex romps that I, we originally pitched sitting through and realized that would be a horrible idea uh, because it would just be like you, you would giggle at it a little bit and, and point at some of the dated stuff and ogle the feather haired women that that make up both you know the female cast and our sex dreams like. But there wouldn't be anything overly memorable about it. Here, with Tripper, Murray creates like a full character, has a great arc where he, you kind of pointed out uh, that he he matures a little bit. He develops this relationship with this kid, which are my favorite moments in the whole movie. They're so like touching and poignant. But those are the moments too where like Murray really shines beyond like the improv humor because like he shows like, he can be a genuinely warm, cozy human being who you want to just hang out with and who you might take a few life lessons from. Yeah, I. that's for me what I keep coming back to this movie for. I mean, you were saying you've watched it five times. This was my COVID movie, man. Like, I'd seen it before, but like being alone in my apartment, I needed, I needed comfort food. And like this... I'll be honest, this movie really got me through like rough days where I was just in a yeah. bad mood and it was dark. And like Meatballs is one of those movies like Tommy Boy to me that is like such comfort food. And Tommy Boy is also another film that's hilarious but sweet. It's got a right. real heart to it. Like you can't deny that like the charm of like real humanity. And you wonder if Lauren Michaels with like this string of SNL movies that he even helped produce, especially with that 90s cast with Sandler and, and Chris Farley and Chris Rock and Tim Meadows and the ladies man, like all oh, of yeah. these, these movies, they also feel like extensions of what Landis and Reitman were first doing with these SNL stars. Like they were the prototypes. They were the ones who were first like, well, what if we took these dudes who were on this pretty revolutionary sketch TV comedy show and actually like, put them in a budgeted film like Lauren Michaels was like, Oh shit. Well, that's my show. I might as well do that too. You know, like they kind of beat him to the punch. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said about, um, Murray already showing his like chops besides his comedic chops. We all knew he had comedic chops from SNL. And then the first, the first 10 minutes of this, you're like, he has so many long, he's got monologues. Again, the, the opening quote of, you know, I, Jerry Aldini, special, you know, special programs director, which is the same name as his lounge singer that he would do the Star Wars songs for. Yeah. And there's, you can see all these, these little things. It's, it's actually, again, like Wet Hot American Summer, David Wayne and them have these names like Jim Stencil that mm -hmm. come back in their humor. And it's like for From the, like the state for, yeah, like for that. the initiated it's, it's funny. Um, but it's also funny. The name alone is, is funny, but there's so many moments in this where that humanity breaks through. And I think, one of them, you see Rudy is this, you know, which becomes a cliche of which we will also see in the burning when we discuss it is the quiet kid whose dad, you know, their parents probably don't want him at home. They're going through divorce. He's or he's bullied at school. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't know how to make friends. And then the older. It's also the Tatum O'Neill character in Little Darlings. Like, yes. There's the whole subplot where her dad is getting divorced. She's the rich girl who's losing her rich daddy a little bit. Exactly. And there's this idea of like when you're at camp, you also don't know what's going on with these kids outside of camp. It's kind of like everyone starts from square square one. 
But, you know, Bill Murray, while I think sometimes you could say that kind of humor can get cloying and annoying, he uses it for a purpose in the scenes with Rudy where Rudy needs to be broken through too. Like he's so closed off that Murray uses his like genuinely funny aphorisms to like crack through the shell. And then the whole French fry scene the, the, where yeah. he talks him out of like taking a bus ticket to go home is like my favorite scene in the whole fucking movie. It's wonderful. And he does the whole thing where he's like, are oh, you going to Vegas, man? Oh, I love to go to Vegas. I'm a party guy. And it's just, he he's, and then Rudy's like, I just want people to like him. He's like, why? And he's like, you make one good friend a summer and you're great. And it's so real. And, it, and those, and the, or the scene where they're running on parents day. And he's like, your dad coming up. No, yours. You mind hang with me today? And Rudy's like, yeah. And you see Nori be like, okay. And he has this little look of this really sweet look of like, I'm taking care of this kid or later on where he did the decathlon the, scene where he goes, Oh, I don't want to let you down. He's like, you won't. Yeah. You know, and it just, it's so, it's so fucking sweet. And, I think I was saying to you earlier, this movie is like a fucking hot dog and a Coke. It is just, um, you know, I know it's Canadian. This is just like summertime comfort friendship. I want to hang out with these people. Like the best poutine on a cold Toronto day. I mean, seriously, but you know, you and I have so many times talked about like why we like slashers. And I've always said my number one reason is not even the killing. It's the hangout parts is they're all hangout movies until they're not. And this is basically a slasher with no deaths. I mean, it has all the same setup of characters that we'll see in the burning but no one dies. Well, let's get into that. Let's do the burning now. Let's do it. All right. one's The Burning, which Martin, as you've already kind of set up, is sort of meatballs, but with dead bodies. Like, it's almost the same exact movie. Yeah, it's it's really weird because a lot of people, you know, came out the year after Friday the 13th, and any camp slasher, everyone's like, it's a ripoff. And I believe it was already in production before Friday the 13th came out. That's the story, at least. Um... 
what was the release delayed? Did they just have Some, trouble getting it to like a distributor? Something like that. Um, and so because they're both in New York too, pulling from a lot of and both have Savini, right? So I think Savini went dem- immediately from that, and at the same time, he shot the Prowler also in like I think Connecticut, right? Um, so he was like kind of hanging out in that area, just and working. Maniac too with Lustig. And, yeah, well, he was just you know, in high, in high demand. And then of course our favorite nightmare, which he did so much work on. Um, but, and and threatened everybody involved with nightmare with like litigation and possibly death if they didn't take his name off the promo materials. Real, real normal kind of guy. Um, but the burning is, I believe the first feature from the Weinstein brothers. Um, if not, and Brad gray and and Brad gray. And so it was film ways, I believe were the one who put it out. Correct. Um, and it's, it's different. It's very different plot wise, or I was just a killer from Friday the 13th and that there's, it's actually camp during session. So you get a lot of, like you were saying, the meatballs beats. One of the things about the Friday the 13th is interesting is so few of them take place while camp is open. It's I either people always open. I think, is it Jason Lee lives the only mm-hmm. one with kids actually, actually there? Yeah. Because like, it's all either they're reopening the camp you know, wrongheadedly and as crazy Ralph would tell them or Or they're they're hanging out (laughs) or it's like been turned into a resort that they don't know it's crystal Lake anymore. Yeah. And three and four are just like Higgins Haven. They're at cabins that are like on crystal Lake and and four, same thing. It's just like a, a teen hangout cabin. But this one is a camp movie. I mean, it is a full on, you know, nuts and bolts, all the, all the subplots of love and revenge and the bully and, and, and the campfire tales and everything you see it. And the cafeteria scene, the cafeteria scene is one of the stalwarts of the, the summer camp subgenre. It's like, like you have in meatballs, the, the gossip. gossip announcement in this one, you have like a young Holly Hunter, like appearing for like half a second when all of the, uh, girls are sitting at the, the girls' lunch table. The guys are basically like looking like, ooh, who are we going to score with from across the way? And then in Little Darlings, you have a full-on food fight uh, where Christy McNichol and uh, Tatum O'Neill like just smear like pudding and shit on each other. That came out wrong. But like, you know, it, it's you have to have, you know you're in, in, in uh, summer camp territory when you have the cafeteria in full swing kids are eating. They're yelling at each other and a bunch of goofy stuff's going on. Also there's chance. There's always weird chance, which I also remember from my time in summer camp. Like that's a real thing. Yeah. We did the same thing. And we would like say like, cause I went to Swedish camp. Very cool. I know. And we would, uh, hot. Yeah. Be like, we'd say someone's name. They had to stand up on the chair all this kind of stuff. And it was always very like, it was always, like the, and it the, was like cabin pride stuff is that you were always part of like a team. Yep. You're like cabin B is the best. We're going to kick all the rest. I don't know. I made that up on the spot. Yeah. Cause it's, it was all the mess hall was like the heart right. of, of like the community. It's where everyone was together at the same time or the campfire, like two places where it was like the communal um, settings. And, What's really funny about this movie is I was watching it and you and I are in agreement on this. I know through texting is just like there are so many beats and elements that are identical to meatballs. It's so crazy. It's crazy. So like you have um, 
one thing about a character trying to, as we mentioned earlier, um, in a very way that would not fly today, um, try to get a girl to sleep with him. Um, Glazer. uh, Well, Glazer and then also um, Eddie. Oh, yeah. Um, who's even worse. And it's these, it's a full court press with these guys. And he's it's, it's, 36, too. He has a receding hairline. Yeah, he's a member of AARP. And um, <laughs> this guy drives a, a fucking Buick. And, he gets discounts at the movies. Well, and, and that's, you know, but that's an element we see in both films. Also, a similar relationship we have with Bill Murray and Rudy. We have with um, uh, the main head handsome head counselor and then Brian Backer of um, Fast Times Ridge Mountain High fame as Alfred, who's the nerdy, but he's also a peeper. Like he's Alfred's a a creep, man. Like Alfred's like they try to make, okay. So this is almost standard slasher movie plotting to where Alfred almost becomes like the red herring. Like, I think we're supposed to think that he's creepy and weird enough that he might like commit some kind of weird act. But at the same time, it's like, they have the whole intro with Cropsy, the who is like deformed because of a, again one of the the great slasher tropes, a prank gone awry. Yep. Where these kids literally commit arson and burn this dude alive, which left me with some serious questions. Like, how did nobody get charged? Did the parents never find out? Was Cropsy that big of a piece of shit? that nobody ever said anything like the setup for this movie is kind of ridiculous because it revolves around a bunch of kids accidentally lighting a man on fire. And then he goes to the hospital and has like, he's tended to by one of the worst orderlies in hospital history who refers to him as a freak and uses like looking at him as a dare to initiate like new doctors on the night shift, like just a completely bizarre setup for a slasher. But they try to sell us on Alfred being a red herring, but it's like, we know it's fucking Cropsy. Like he's the, he's the Jason Voorhees of this movie. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I honestly don't think it's a red herring. I think they're just trying to add another element to the story because similar had the runtime a little bit for real. I mean, they're they're before the killings start and the killings start pretty late in this movie. And a lot with a lot of slashers, you don't sometimes get killings until the midpoint. Anyway, it's like a lot of setup and like no crops. He's pissed. He he takes those fucking shears and he's fucking people up early. But well, it's it's still a little bit late. Though. I think it's past the midpoint. Um, when he starts killing, he kills obviously the prostitute. I was going to say, yeah, you, you get that pretty early to where like he's deformed. Cause that's the other thing is how long it's five years. Is it five? So it's five years. What was Cropsy doing? Like he gets out of the hospital and straight mercs. Yeah. prostitute and then he just goes what's with these guys in their summer camp obsession why are he and Jason Voorhees like like you get Voorhees's attachment to it because of like his mom dying and stuff like but Cropsy just went back and he's like I gotta get revenge well cause it's I mean because the main counselor is one of the kids who burned oh him. I know that's the big reveal uh, yeah but it's like can't you do anything else like just hang out mid like I don't know, well, become a pinball champion or something. It's drink re- yourself to death. It's really funny though, because you have when he's in, you know, he's getting out of the burn ward after five years of skin grafts. Like it's that fucking long. And the doctor's pushing him. He's like, 
I know you're really angry, but try to put that behind you. And Grossi <laughs> immediately goes out and murders a prostitute like five minutes later. Stabs her to death with scissors. Yeah. And it go. it's funny, like 42nd Street, like Jallo kind of shit. Like he goes up and. Oh, real bu- Bill Lustig stuff. Yeah. He's got the, even got the fucking like black trench coat on. And, and then he goes to. Um, and to, that woman who plays the prostitute looks like a prostitute. She probably was. Um, <laughs> and. But they, they get to the camp, and, and there's a lot... I mean, this is one of those slashers, again, with a lot of setup char- of character stuff, of, like, you have Glazer trying to sleep with with Sally. You have Eddie, who's also trying to... Who's pushing too hard with Karen. Um, you have all the stuff with Alfred. Then you have... Um, Jason Alexander with hair. Jason Alexander is, is doing a kind of Bill Murray thing. He's doing the the kind of big man on campus. He's not the head counselor, but he's the kind of, like, I can use my humor to sleep with women. Like his whole thing is like, Are, like they're not counselors though, right? Doesn't this isn't this the movie that blurs the line of like we don't know who's actually attending camp and who's actually like counselor here. This this is a problem in all camp movies where you're I mean meatballs is pretty clear, but when you have the especially you have CITs like counselors only training, there's just this like spectrum of like little kids to adults and in the middle there it's like you could be a counselor or a camper. I mean, uh, we'll get to sleepaway camp. It's the same shit. You know, it's that we're like, I don't know who's a fucking, I know that like, you know, Angela is a camper, but like Meg and them, I don't know. It's like the ages it, are very nebulous. Cause they're all played by 40 year olds. Well, that's the thing. It's like, if you're, if you're like hiring, Jason Alexander is 46 and twice divorced in this movie. Yeah. He's, he's too old for this shit. And he looks like he's wearing a hairpiece and it's only because you know him as George Costanza. Like, I don't know if that, I think that hair is real, but it's still weird looking. This is nine years away from him auditioning for Seinfeld. Think about that. <laughs> this is fucking like he went from being this in nine years to that. But and Fisher Stevens, Fisher Stevens, and you were saying earlier off mic that he's the one who actually looks like a real. He looks like a kid. He looks, he looks young. Great. Like he's perfectly cast. He's funny, and his name's Woodstock, and he's also like a champion jerk off. It's his whole. Literally. It's his whole thing. So um, Jason Alexander's character is um, he's like the guy in jail who, or the guy in style <laughs> in the style who can get you whatever you need. Right, so he's the guy I can get you new. He's Red from Shawshank. Right. He's Morgan Freeman, but white and with hair. Exactly. It's, it's like I can get you nudie magazines. I can get you condoms. I can get you candy. Um, and for so Woodstock is and Glazer's upset with the price of rubbers. Oh, and the, I need. I want a lubricated rubbers. Lubricated rubbers. <laughs> and and everyone's real fucking New York. And um, but he uh, Woodstock is like his best friend, and Woodstock has a whole thing about. He's trying to be like, uh, I have the quote here, and I really like it a lot. Um, Some guys aspire to eat like or win hot dog competitions. He wants to be the champion at jacking it. He's like, hey, he goes, hey, size never stopped Woody. That's the world bantamweight jerk off champ over there, huh? Just stick with me, kid. Keep flexing that muscle. And he's being very like goofy, and he's doing this kind of almost like uh, uh, Three Stooges voice sometimes, like certainly. He does it, yeah, yeah. He does it quite a bit, and so he's like, he got he gets vitamin E um, for like. <laughs> To to help Woody with his to help Woodstock with his uh, his jerk off challenge whatever that is um, it's a great line too that there's, you can see some improv stuff from Jason Alexander where they're all looking at a Playboy and he goes oh God bless her mom and dad yeah <laughs> it's a total Costanza line oh, it's like and yeah you said Holly Hunter's there and um, but I think 
one of the things I love about this movie is it has one of my all-time favorite slasher death scenes, and it's the raft. Which was um, notoriously edited, right? Well, it was at least censored overseas because this was one of the video nasties for a while. It was, and I believe when it turns to red at the end, that was actually to make it, it was supposed to go on longer. Right. And that was actually made, it's almost kind of like the whole thing of Kill Bill like going black and white, like apocryphal, like if it was color, it would be NC-17. But one of the things about slashers is they rarely kill people in a group. And this was so early in the cycle of the, of the slasher films that it was like, there are no rules yet. And so he's like, oh, of course the crops, he would kill like five kids on a fucking raft. And it is like Savini having a good time and pulling out all his bag of tricks. Like you have, I think he considers it like, I know maniac is his favorite of his early works. Like the one that mm-hmm. he goes, that's the crown jewel. But I think this is one that he really treasures too, because like, it's really gross. <laughs> Well, this one and my favorite from 81 that the work he did in the 81 was, was Prowler because there's like a death where he puts the bayonet to the top of the guy's head and the eyes guys go up in his head. Fucking awesome. Or killing the girl, the same scene in the, uh, the shower with the pitchfork. Not a good movie, but awesome deaths. A boring movie. A really, but all the deaths are brutal and also blowing the head off the killer at the end is great. Um, sorry, Joe Zito. Yeah. Um, but got him to do one of the best Friday 13th movies, but, this scene is just so bananas. And I remember I did a, I wrote, when I wrote my master's thesis, like I had to do a presentation and I of course opened with this scene. I was like, how can you not open with the scene from, from burning? Um, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's awesome. And this, the, I mean the whole end, one of my all time favorite, like confrontation scenes with the slasher is in this movie where it's the old mine on the other side of the lake and um, Alfred has been captured by Cropsey, um, and our, our hero has to go in looking a lot like Ash, I might say, with denim shirt and jeans and an axe. And there's this shot. Full Canadian tuxedo. Full Canadian tuxedo. And there's a shot that was used in a lobby card, and it's him standing with the axe, and there's a, a mine card was right in behind. The light is blasting through the slats. It's awesome. And it's just like, I want that lobby card so bad. And, there, and that whole scene of like, he and Alfred kind of working together to kill Cropsey. Um, it's just, it's fucking awesome. I mean, I just, I really think this is kind of a fun, a fun watch. It's really great. Uh, also to your point about how this came early in the slasher cycle while the rules were kind of being written for yeah. slashers. This inverts the final girl. Yeah. You have a final guy mm-hmm. for the first time. And it's because He's the one who was in on the prank and even kind of initiated it. Like he was really into it in that flashback when you realize that that's him. Like it's kind of cool to watch this movie without probably knowing it in the moment, especially if it, you know, the stories are true and this was actually in production at the same time, if not before Friday the 13th, that like, it was doing something completely different from Halloween. It wasn't all about trapping a girl in the closet. It was about making a guy pay for his past sins. Yeah. And everything I've read, I agree. Everything I've read too is it was really from, I think it was, it was Bob story by Harvey and then Bob helped write the screenplay. 
and it was baked because Cropsy is a real legend in New York. Because there's the obviously the documentary the, Cropsy, a, which is fucking awesome. I mean, one of my all time favorite docs. I mean, it's a horror doc. It's terrifying. Um, I didn't like Killer Legends as much. Their follow up, no, 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 that was kind of weak. But Cropsy, I saw in the theater. I was like, damn, this is great. Um, but Cropsy was this legend on mostly on Long Island, but yeah. also the all of and all of uh, a lot of I think Staten Island is which is where they're from um, of of New York where it was just this kind of guy who lived in the woods and, but they just took that kind of legend and made him something specific. Like, you know, Cropsy was the, the fix it guy at this camp who they torched. Wasn't the original name of the movie Cropsy? I think, I think, it think the original been. script was called Cropsy when Weinstein had a, a writing credit on it too. I mean, it makes sense. Burning is definitely more of a slasher title that like, Way more marketable. Yeah. Um, also, one of my favorite posters of all time. One of my I, old I got friends. One. Like, the one with the, the two lovers, like, kissing in the lake. Yep. Yeah, one of my friends that I, I worked at the movie theater with for years as a projectionist, he had the giant subway sheet of <sighs> that hanging from... Uh, the the ceiling in his bedroom that he had found on eBay back in the day on eBay when you could buy like any of these original one sheets for like super cheap like he was one of the first ones to really capitalize on that I think he told me he got it for like twenty bucks from some collector and now it's like, a thousand yeah yeah now it's impossible to find yeah I, I I love the design I love all the advertising for this movie and we can't forget the Rick Wakeman score. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it fucking rules like, it's that really, I mean, also following the success of Halloween, you're like, okay, synth is cheaper, but also let's go with it. And, and Wakeman was a pretty popular because he would do his own, own albums. He was in yes. Right. As the keyboardist. Yeah. And he did a lot of solo albums of just like, I have one. It's like, Right, uh, a, a tribute to uh, the Knights of the Round Table, and I got it for a dollar in some dollar bin. He's a it. weird fucking guy, real pretentious. Yeah, but like I love this score. Oh, it's amazing! It sounds incredible. It has some great themes to it. All of these movies have really, really good music. You got Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, you crazy. Know, but before he did, you know, I went on did Ghostbusters with Reitman. So well, Little Darlings has you know Holland Oates and and John Lennon and. Uh, Blondie at one point, yep. like it, they did not spare any expense on the music budget. No, not at all. Versus you think about Friday 13th, also a Paramount movie has like a, you know, Manfredini. I love him, but he doesn't have a lot of range and there's like, no, no. there's no good songs in the movie. Like it's just like, there's the one like country shit music that, uh, they're listening to with, uh, Kevin Bacon or the one that they used twice in the diner. Oh, yeah. And in the uh, both diners. It's clearly they could only afford one song. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to get to Little Darlings? Yes, sir. All right. Yeah. 
1980s Little Darlings, the last of our first uh, trilogy of movies from summer camp. Safe to say, nobody would make this movie today. Absolutely not. Though it is the best movie probably out of all of the ones that we'll cover in this whole series. I think this movie is a stone masterpiece. It is almost entirely made up of the poignant scenes between Tripper and and the little shy kid because that's this what this whole movie's about. It's about two girls, you know, played by uh, Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill. Tatum O'Neill playing uh, the rich girl and then Christy McNichol being the girl from the other side of the tracks whose mom looks like a hotter version of the prostitute that Cropsey kills in The Burning. Much hotter version. <laughs> but like... Uh, they meet at summer camp and they end up competing to see who will lose their virginity first. Yeah. So American pie has done this. A few other movies have done this, but it's all revolving around guys. This is about 15 year old girls. (laughs) That's, that's where I just don't think they would touch the 10 foot pole because it actually, some of the sex romps, a lot of the sex team romps of the, 80s, late 70s, early 80s, were once the person lost their virginity, it was like high fives all around. It was like it was part of the joke or it was, you know, again, Revenge of the Nerds, where it's like the nerd got the hot girl by any means necessary and it's fucked up. This film is more akin actually to the kind of secret poignancy of a film like Superbad, where you think it's building up to... These guys are talking sex the whole time. And of course you learn that Seth is all talk, you know, that Jonah Hill is all talk and that Michael Sarah, when he has the chance to sleep with Becca, it's not the right time. She's drunk. It's, it's the kind of like the realization of all the stories, all the kind of legends we tell each other about sex are bullshit. This feels more akin to that where it's, or even the, even kind of the poignancy of the end of it, it's fucked up as there's all parts of the film, is uh, American Pie, where it's these guys who've all had learned a lesson not about, hey, we learned we lost virginity. It more follows the um, this great screenwriting book by John York where it's like all good stories, the main characters go after what they want and realize and get what they need. And this is very much like they, they think they want sex and to be popular. But what they need is like to kind of learn and understand. And, and, and it's a coming of age story through and through. Um, and, and it falls so. into some like cliche traps and stuff because like one of the guys that, you know, Tatum O'Neill tries to seduce as an older, you know, 40 year old French teacher. Armand Asante. Like, Armand Asante at his most like Stallone or Asante ish. Yes. And, you know, so the, and there's the whole like kind of, I don't want to ruin it completely for those who haven't seen this movie yet, but there's the scene where she tries to seduce him and let's say it doesn't go as she originally plans to where uh, Chrissy McNichols character, you know, gets into a relationship with Matt Dillon, one of the a very young boyish Matt Dillon um, who is attending camp Mohawk on the other side of the lake because it's, it makes the distinct decision to segregate the camp based on sexes. Yeah. You have the guys on one side and who are older, or at least that's who the, these girls become fascinated with. 
and then the girls on the other side. And then it allows you to kind of just spend all this time with these women. And one of the main focuses of the movie that I really, really enjoy is how frank these young girls are about sex and talking about sex. And it's not in a funny tee hee sort of way. Like it really tries to be realistic. And I think achieves it pretty well. Yeah, I would agree. But like you said, there are the cliches and one of the cliches of camp movies and teen sex comedies is the character or characters who talk a big game like they've already had lots of sex, you know, and that's the Victor character in Wet Hot American Summer. It's the whole joke of he's had a thousand girls and then he finally tells he finally tells Neil, his friend, uh, Chola Trulio. I've never had sex. He's like, you're a loser. You are a loser. And, <laughs> and I absolutely love it. <laughs> Cause it's like, and then it, and it continues into 10 years later, the, the, the sequel show where it's a whole thing about you. Finally, it's like, he's fucking 28. He's still a virgin. Um, but it's that whole thing of the person who talks the biggest game and kind of wants to run the show is usually has no idea about sex. And there's a lot of that in this film too, especially the kind of the ringleader, the popular girl who's like a model and an actress. She was in a, a television commercial that she bets her residual check. She's the one who initiates the bet, not the girls. She basically bets with Christy McNichol and is like, I'll give you this $100 check if you lose your virginity but she picks who she has to compete against. If she loses at first and she ends up picking Tatum O'Neal and they're bunked right next to each other and obviously hate each other because they get in a fight on the bus on the way in. You know, Christy McNichol won't stop smoking cigarettes. Tatum O'Neal won't stop being like a dilettante the whole time. Like the setup is super cliched, but the way it plays out is just really organic and natural. And I think honestly comes from the fact that two women actually wrote the movie, but a man directed it. Mm. Ron Maxwell, who's mostly known for, wait for it, Gettysburg and gods and generals. No way. Yeah. He's the guy who made the big nineties civil war epics. Little darlings is like his, is like kind of, I think first movie that he ever made. Shit. Um, cause he also made the parent trap too. Oh. Like really weird CV, but interesting guy because I mean this film it's incredibly well shot. It's it's Beautiful. amazing to look at. Often like you made comparisons to Picnic at Hanging Rock, the Peter Weir movie, but I was thinking Bergman at times. Like all those moments where like the girls are walking through the field and like having this, these discussions about sex, and it's all very like golden light and like the, the way that like they're just kind of moving between the tall grass and stuff. Like there's a real artful touch to this movie. Yeah. I was going to say there's like an art house thing going on and you made a point off, off mic of it feels like a memory. It feels like a girl talking about, and I, and it, I would agree because the Christian Nichol character, when she says goodbye to Matt Dillon, she'll never forget you. It's like the idea of like, you never forget your first and that it well, reminds me a lot of a link ladder or Pete or licorice pizzas. The other one, it makes me think of a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, cause it, it, there are rose tinted glasses, but there's also the harsh, like kind of growing pains, you know? Um, and I think of one of the most, well, the scene where she loses her virginity is in um, this boathouse and it feels like a dream. It really, there's an element because the rain, it's raining outside. It's like, on one hand, it could be romantic, but it's not. 
you know, it, it, it has that sense of like uh, reality kind of crashes in on the dream. Uh, they don't want to watch each other like undress too. She becomes suddenly uncomfortable with the whole thing. And then even when they start to get their clothes off, like he lays down. Cause it's, it's interesting how he plays it from both sides to where she's uncomfortable with him, uh, watching her while she undresses and then he becomes uncomfortable because he it start it like starts to dawn on him that she has no fucking idea what she's doing and he's laying there kind of like an idiot and it it hurts his ego. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it there's just all these shots that do feel like they are from a memory. And and I think I mean a lot of the the quality of this film rides on their performances too. I mean, I think especially Christy McNichol, I mean, Tana McNichol is great in this, but I think specifically Christy McNichol and the scene where she Incredible is telling it. her about it. And they're both admitting to one another that, you know, one of them, you know, again, very similar to American pie where you have the person who speaks the loudest is usually lying. And the person who actually did the thing might be more quiet about it. Yeah. And she's the Mina Savari character. Yeah, very much. Or, or in that, you know, the, opposite the Chris um Chris Klein yeah Chris Klein um that whole thing of like well they're really in love so they're not going to talk about it or um I think Thomas Ian whatever his name is the other guy um it was awkward like he was the one be, you know building up the most and it was kind of his relation his experience was much more like Christy McNichols where it was like they finally did it and it was not what they expected well and it's the idea of putting so much weight on yes it, to where it to where it is and where it stands in your life as like an experience, because as a, a young virgin, you're like, I'm going to be forever changed after I have sex. And it does again, it's a cliche of these types of movies, but it has one scene in this movie. It's one of the best scenes I've ever like witnessed in any of these kind of coming of age dramas to where they talk about the truth to each other. And, yeah. And that scene. Tatum yeah. O'Neill said, basically says that she lies and it's this really long shot of Christy McNichol reacting to it. And you realize that it's dawning on her that none of it matters. And that in a weird cosmic sense, none of it will matter beyond this memory. Beyond like that moment when she says goodbye to him, which you were starting to point out when I rudely cut you off. <laughs> that it feels like the thing that you remember is that there's all of this golden light and these frank discussions of sex and you know they have a counselor who becomes kind of like a mentor to them and everything but the thing you remember the most is the goodbye behind you know the showers or by the telephone and saying you know we won't see each other again and like but you meant something to me but she's also like processing in that moment like does this actually mean anything in in, in the great scheme of like life and i, I you don't know that it does. When she straight up confronts her, jokingly confronts her mom about it, they all get picked up. And I think, I think I get, I literally love the ending of this because she says, um, she goes to her mother and it's like, mom, why have you been talking about sex? Like you've been building it up. Like it's this thing too. Cause her mom, obviously if not a prostitute is a, a woman of who has many male callers, suitors, many suitors who come for tea. Um, but I think the... I think she's a waitress. I think she says she's a waitress at some point. But there is an element. Her mom is, is flashy. She's a and, floozy. And she's a floozy. But I love the, the ending moment is her coming over saying, this is my best friend. And it's the idea that 
the highlight of the summer is the friendship and that they are going to stay. This is what's important that they have. She's kind of realized that the, the, you said the kind of over the built up sense of sex is going to change. Everything is like, I kind of just still want to be a girl. And like, this is my friend. That's the element I get from that. Well, and again, it's kind of the same movie as meatballs or at least the same message because it goes back to Bill Murray with the kid being like, I just want everybody to like me. And he goes, why? Yes. And he all goes, you need is one. All you need is one friend for the summer. That's what Little Darlings becomes about because like these girls, they literally have teams who make t-shirts uh, like Comp- for which yeah. side, almost like a, you know, uh, a, a twilight competition thing where they would say I'm team Edward or team Jacob. Like here they're, they're uh, the team, this girl or team that girl, you yeah. know? And in the end, again, that, all turns out to be meaningless because what is truly meaningful is the fact that they bonded. They shared this experience together and they'll probably be friends for the rest of their life or maybe just, you know, the following summer, the next time they see each other at camp. It's, it's the thing that Tripper says, you know, you just, all you need to do is make one friend. Yeah. And it's, it's sweet. It's poignant. And, um, as a first time watch for me and I really enjoyed it. I love this movie. I think it's a, a, 100% stone masterwork, one of the great undervalued coming-of-age films of all time that I wish would get like a proper like Blu-ray release somewhere, Mm. but I know the rights are all fucked up and weird with it. Well, it's on Prime for rent now. I know. Yeah, but but yeah, no no disc, right? Yeah, Yeah, we, we need an actual copy. Like somebody like... I don't want to say vinegar syndrome, but like an imprint overseas in the UK, like this feels 100% fit for like umbrella or something. Yeah, umbrella would that would be great. Like somebody overseas who can get the rights because I know they're weird in the United States, and that's why we don't really have. Like I have it on VHS, and I found you know an HD copy from another illicit source, the same way I did with Night of the Juggler, Um, and she's in this too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the little girl from Night of the Jugglers in this. I jumped off the couch. Holy shit! Yeah, she's a lot chonky in this too. And same year though. And she jokes. She's like, because there's a scene. I love the one of one of the penultimate scenes is them all confronting the the uh, the cool girl about like she's the one who's been pushing this whole narrative. Like we gotta you know lose your virginity. And they're all like, fuck you. And that girl's like, I'd rather be f- fat and ugly instead of you. You know, it's all of them. It's kind of a great. And then she gets punched by Cynthia Nixon. At yeah, the a end. young Cynthia Nixon, which is insane. She must be 13 here. Who plays the awesome hippie girl. That's the other thing that this movie does incredibly well is that it carves out distinct personalities for these girls in ways that these other summer camp movies haven't is that it makes you know when they're on screen, who they are, what their goals are, and like these little kind of traits that define like define them. Yeah, the other pudgy girl is my favorite character. Oh my god, she's so great. She's so because like so she like kicks off the fucking condom machine and like just carries the whole thing out is just gold. Because she's obviously like not trying to lose. She's like not trying to lose her virginity. She's just like this is all kind of fun to me. Like I'm here for the party. Well, she just know? wants. To- Again, she just wants to be part of the crew. The older like she crew. even tries, she stuffs her bra and like tries to sneak into the older girl cabin and they, the, the counselor catches her and is like, you belong over there. And she's like, that's for the 10 year olds. That's bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Well, Martin, this has been great. What an amazing like first episode in our four part miniseries covering summer camp movies. Looking I'm, forward to the rest. Yeah. It, it's about to get 
way weirder. So if you're following along, next week gets super trashy. Oh, baby. Because we got Meatballs 2, Madman, and Oddballs. Oh, which you watched today, right? Woof. It's, want, it's a movie. I was going to say, you want to give us a preview of Oddballs? I'll just say, it's worth a watch. It's pretty fucking insane. It'll get canceled harder than Tripper would in real life. Absolutely. And we'll see you guys next time for Secret Handshake. Bye-bye. There's a reason for the sunshine sky And there's a reason why I'm feeling so high Must be the season when that love light shines all around us So let that feeling grab you deep inside And send you reeling where your love can't hide And then go stealing through the moonlit nights with your lover Just let your love flow like a mountain stream And let your love grow Smallest of dreams And let your love show And you'll know what I mean It's the season Let your love fly Like a bird on a wing Let your love bind you To all living things And let your love shine And you'll know what I mean That's the reason There's a reason for the warm sweet nights And there's a reason For the candle lights Must be the season When those love rides shine All around us So let that wonder Take you into space And lay you under It's loving embrace Just feel the thunder As it warms your face You can't hold back just let your love flow like a mountain stream And let your love grow with the smallest of dreams And let your love show and you'll know what I mean It's the season Let your love fly like a bird on a wing And let your love bind you to all living things And let your love shine and you'll know what I mean That's the reason Just let your love flow Like a mountain stream And let your love grow With the smallest of dreams And let your love show And you'll know what I mean It's the season